welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. Today we're launching another mini-series on this podcast. Once a month, we'll be hearing from our private office team about the biggest trends for private investors and family offices in real estate. Our first episode features the key highlights from a webinar recorded this week on the 14th of July. Hosted by the excellent Rory Penn, Head of Private Office, the panel included Private Office Partner Sarah May Brown, Head of Global Capital Markets Research Anthony Duggan, and Residential Research Associate Flora Harley. Have a listen and hear from Flora on the economy, Sarah on the rise of high net worths, and stay tuned to hear from Anthony. He gives his view on the key geographies private investors are focused on. Our private clients absolutely remain focused on what we call the super cities. So those global capital city locations around the world that absolutely are liquid, transparent, that attract investors from all the way around the world. He also spoke about the sectors they are targeting. Structural and demographic driven sectors, looking at the ageing population supporting that, looking towards this trend towards healthcare, which has only accelerated over the last few months, that healthcare provision, student housing, data centres. And now I'll get out the way and I'll hand over to Rory as he begins his chat with Flora. We're in hugely confusing times, multiple data points. It is hard to see the wood from the trees, particularly hard for our clients who cover multiple jurisdictions. It is therefore harder for our clients to deliver on their investment strategies. There is a changing economic landscape. But Flora, can we take a step back? Can you give us some perspective on where we're at at the moment and what the kind of global perspective is on the economy? I think it's so hard at the moment. As you said, there's so many different data points, some positive, some negative. But taking a step back, it's the first time that everywhere around the world, all markets have gone through something together. It's at different paces and at different impacts, but it's the first time that we can say that everyone has been impacted by one thing at a time. I think it's important to see lessons from around the world, particularly around local lockdowns and the prospect of second waves. We've seen some effective local lockdowns that have been quelled in Beijing a few weeks ago and in Leicester here and now Melbourne in Australia. So we're all seeing that second more regional outbreak. But these seem to be stemmed and we can then think that the impact of any second wave would be less than what we saw in the previous first wave in April particularly, which was definitely the trough of the fall in economic output. So the impact of any ongoing restrictions will be limited. And I think that is important, especially as we get more track and trace and as more of these regional lockdowns take place. This is definitely the biggest disruption that we've seen in peacetime and uncertainty had been building in previous years. We thought that 2019 was the peak of this uncertainty and then 2020 happened and we had a global pandemic. No one, well, most people couldn't foresee this black swan event. But I think it's showing people that you can't always wait until a more certain time to act as uncertainty isn't going away. You don't know when the next black swan event is. As I said, the majority of people didn't see this coming. We are in the midst of a global recession and GDP is expected to contract around 5% this year. At the beginning of the year, we thought the global GDP would grow by 3%. That's quite a huge downward revision and is the biggest fall that we've ever seen since the global GDP record began. But I think it's important that a lot of places are coming out of it and we're seeing a lot of positive economic news and real-time data points you know, from mobility to air traffic and all these things, they're starting on that upward trend. So it's starting to see the beginning of that recovery now. That's absolutely fascinating. As you say, 2019 was kind of peak uncertainty for, 
I think since 1996, wasn't it, when they started measuring uncertainty. So we need sentiment to improve. And I want to see how this impacts the global wealth space. The prime residential market and the commercial markets are so influenced by the weight of capital out there. A slowdown in the global economy is surely going to slow down the amount of ultra-high net worths being created on a daily, monthly, annual basis. What's the big picture at the moment in terms of the size of the ultra-high net worth space? Well, I think it's important if we look back at what happened in 2019. In the wealth report, we, through our new wealth sizing model, we said that there were over 500,000 ultra-high net worths globally. And whilst 2019 we thought was the peak of uncertainty and we had seen slower economic growth than previous years, we still saw an annualised growth in ultra-high net worth of 6%. That was a huge amount. And a lot of this was due to strong growth in equity markets, in gold markets, and to different movements in currencies as it was all measured relative wealth in US dollars. And in fact, if we look at what's happened in 2020, in March, there was huge drops in the stock market. Some were down around 30%. But we've seen a lot of that being recovered due to the huge amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus going in. The Nasdaq recently hit a record level of highs. The S&P is almost back to its opening amount and is actually up year on year. So there's certainly a lot of volatility, but a lot of opportunity for growth. And why are equities so important is that 23% of that portfolio is ultra high net worth, according to our research. And you can also look at gold, which is another 3%, and that's hitting record highs again, up over 20% year on year. So we're seeing some growth in some of these big assets. And as you said at the beginning, almost a third of wealth is held in property. And there's a lot of opportunities in that as well, as I'm sure we'll talk more to later. I mean, for example, the logistics and e-commerce sector, this is such a huge and big growing sector and is one of those long-term trends. The pandemic is changing habits. In the UK, online sales have gone from something around 20% to 33% in the last few months alone. So there's a lot of scope for growth and it's another long-term trend to be looking at. Thank you, Flora. I'm so interesting hearing about the growth of ultra high net worths. And it is so important to us in the property market, because as it said, it kind of fuels a new source of buyers. I want to bring Sarah in here, running our private wealth intelligence team, part of the private office. So Sarah, there's half a million ultra high net worths we're hearing around the world moving into different markets. But I mean, Sarah, what are the key trends we're seeing in terms of wealth creation? Yeah, I mean, we've just heard from Flora there, you know, we had a backdrop of, of geopolitical and economic uncertainty last year, but we saw the world's wealthy population growing by 6%. You know, that's an additional 31,000 ultra high net worths in actual figures. I think we saw North America really dominate that, but Asia is quickly closing the gap. You know, by 2024, we're expecting that it'll take over from Europe as the world's second largest wealth hub. Again, as we've just heard, you know, the expansion of that private wealth is really unsurprising given that equity markets have, have doubled in growth. 23% of ultra high net worth investment portfolios are made up of equities. So it's easy to see why the performance is affecting and contributing to that growth in private wealth. I think probably one of the most interesting things that we've seen, particularly in our team and across the wider London super prime teams at Knight Frank, you know, our, that wealth is getting younger. It's both you know, generational and inherited wealth, but also new money that's being created, particularly in the, the tech and financial sectors. You know, we've, as I say, we've seen it firsthand in, in the London market. You know, our buyers are getting younger year on year in the last over the last five years. The average age of our now 10 million plus buyers in central London is now below 50, which I think is, is just incredible. So I would say really they're the, they're the sort of key trends that we're seeing. So wealth creation in Asia, 
challenging mm. America, I suppose, is the kind of dominant power of the big kind of entrepreneurial state of mm. ultra high net worth. So we're seeing Asian creation being, you know, India, China, suppose Hong Kong, Singapore, and then younger buyers coming through the system. And I said, you know, longer term, there will be a change probably in property activities. But kind of leads mm. me on to ask, how is that playing out in terms of ultra high net worth kind of property activities? Are we seeing kind of an evolution or a change there? Yeah, well, property accounts for almost a third of most wealthy individuals' investment portfolios. So it's easy to see why that, that any kind of heightened uncertainty would contribute to a rise in the value of safe haven assets. And I think that is a trend that, that you know only looks set to continue in light of the global pandemic. Over the last few years, you know, we've seen a, an ever deeper pool of private capital chasing global real estate. It's interesting when you actually look at, look at the reports, where the wealth is being created, the real global hotspots for that valuation, such as India, Egypt, Vietnam, they're not markets, then in terms of their local real estate markets, they're not mature, transparent or liquid markets. So again, it's sort of easy to see why those those who are creating all of this wealth are wanting to, as quickly as possible, obviously protect that wealth. So in terms of asset protection, they're moving to more credible markets further afield. In terms of asset classes, I think we're seeing investors across the board looking at a much wider range and diversity of asset classes. I'm sure that we'll hear more from Anthony on this, but you know, in terms of the commercial markets, without a doubt, hands down offices still remain the number one investment of choice. But there's a change below that, and that's very much into healthcare becoming ever more relevant for obvious reasons, and hotels and leisure. And on the residential side, I think in the report, we said that we were, we were seeing 60% of those wealth advisors who were interviewed for the Attitude Survey were saying that they felt that their clients would be looking to change their allocations in residential property more into the specialist sectors. So that being sort of student housing, PRS and senior living particularly. So I think what we're saying is changing profile of buyers, they're getting younger, they're more international, and changing buyer requirements. I longer term, we're seeing yeah. their attitude towards either risk or towards new sectors becoming more apparent. Yeah. And I know that's something kind of Anthony wants to pick up on. And I think that's really important from a family office perspective and a private client perspective, if you're looking across the real estate sector, to be open-minded. Um, the sectors mm. are changing. As you say, offices have long been the most popular commercial asset class. But I think longer term, we are going to see a shift into a wider variety of asset classes that generate income that have different kind of fundamental support in them, which might be senior living and aging population, whatever it might be. I think these shifts yeah. will continue to play out. Sarah, we launched the wealth report four months ago, which feels like a five years ago, quite frankly, so much has changed since then. And we reported on our kind of findings then. How do we feel about the findings four months on? Look, I think if you were to ask Andrew Shirley, who edits the Wealth Report, you know, with the benefit of a few months' hindsight, yeah, it would undoubtedly look a bit different. But I think that the you know the key trends and the questions it poses are still are largely very much valid. If anything, overall, I think we've we've seen an acceleration of many of those trends that were already existing. But you know, as you said there, Rory, I think that you know clients are still thinking very much thinking long term and you know remembering the fundamentals to navigate that uncertainty i think historically 
historically, you know, we always see private capital following the institutions into new markets and new asset classes. And interestingly, over the last couple of years, we've seen a few the launch of a few big residentially focused funds in mainland Europe, looking primarily at multifamily residential blocks and student living, particularly. You know, urban populations are growing and housing supply still remains inadequate. There's a long-term argument for RESI as an investment case across Europe. The RCA data shows that investments in purpose-built student and senior living rose by 13% in Q1 this year against the same period uh, last year. And the initial data on the residential markets across Europe over the first half of this year, you know, actually, I, they seem to have weathered the impact of the pandemic reasonably well. You know, pricing's remaining stable. Well, these are certainly conversations that I've been having with private clients. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing from you is a new wave of capital coming through and a broader mind in terms of where that money might go, certainly in the residential side. So more likely to go down PRS, student, senior, land for diversification, for rewilding, for forestry, whatever it might be, and a kind of fund an underlying focus on a better sense of investment and ESG and environmental social governance wrapper possibly over the whole thing from a philanthropic or, or other perspective thank you sarah i want to bring anthony in here anthony does a lot of strategy with family offices private clients with institutions more of a focus on commercial markets but totally understanding anthony that private capital is so important to these commercial markets flora referenced half a million ultra high net worth so half a million clients with 30 million net essentially including their primary residence you know, wealthy private clients, family offices, private capital, whatever we want to call it. What is the impact of this private capital, Anthony, on real estate markets? Yeah, we've heard a lot about that growth in private wealth. And we've also heard that number a number of times now that the ultra high net worths have a third of their assets in real estate. And so it is important to ultra high net worths. And as we said, that, that wealth pool is growing. Just to put a couple more numbers in there to understand how important it is to the real estate, the commercial real estate market. On our calculations, private investors, on their broadest definition, account for 30 or 40% of all global commercial investment transactions every year. So that shows you the scale of it. This year, you know, the first half of the year, we've got provisional data. It's been a challenging and odd six months, as we all know. But private buyers transacting 128 billion of the 340 billion that's been transacted globally this year. So again, in line with that long-term trend. Knight Frank, you know, absolutely private investors and, and family offices are a key part of what we do. And if we look back at our transactions for last year, a third of those involved a private buyer. So you can see from the data just how important that private investor community is to the global commercial real estate markets. And anecdotally, you see it as well. You just look out the office window and you look at those iconic towers that are owned by, in many cases, private in individuals or family offices. But we expect that trend to increase going forward as well. And that growth in wealth in conjunction with a continued appetite for commercial real estate means we expect the, the commercial investors to be increasingly important in the wider real estate markets. And the Attitude Survey in the Wealth Report showed us that 79% of private investors expect to increase their allocations to real estate you know, over the year ahead, and that's ahead of both equities and bonds. So there's, there's real appetite out there to continue to build those portfolios. And if you put that in 
line with something that we're absolutely seeing, which is the increasing institutionalization of the family office. And one of the things we're seeing is that family offices are looking to build structures to help them invest in assets and build portfolios such as real estate. And there was some data from, from UBS that really struck me, and their data shows that there were 7,300 single family offices globally last year. And the number that's important there is that's up 38% over the last two years. So we're seeing a big growth in formal family office structures to help private investors to allocate their capital. What we see that doing is professionalizing the investment strategies. That's adding experienced investment resource to the family office. It's building those efficient structures, those efficient processes. And what we're seeing that do is, is it's lowering the barriers to owning and managing a wider amount and a wider type of sectors in terms of real estate. So to answer your question, yeah, absolutely, that private buyer we see in the, as an increasingly important part of the wider commercial real estate universe. So we're hearing a growing weight of capital and a growing kind of number of ultra high net worths. We're hearing that 30 to 40 percent of all capital deployed into commercial markets comes from private sources. I think you're referencing institutionalization of the private capital market, i.e. more private clients putting their money into family offices, more mature family offices, probably with a, a more professional, long-term considered approach to investing, probably not dissimilar to how some of your institutional clients are looking at yeah. real estate. But how did we get to this 30 to 40%? You know, why, why is real estate so important to private money around the world, to private capital? Yeah, really good question. And you can go back to portfolio theory for that. It has a great performance track record. If you look at the sort of annualized returns for real estate globally over the last 20 years or so, it's it's returning 8%, you know, and that mix of capital, but that underlying stable income return as well. That yield is really attractive to private investors. You do get a stable yield that, you know, there's underpinned by depending on jurisdiction, but but generally long-term leases. And that yield is really visible as well. So you can really see and you can really understand where it's coming from. On top of that, you get the ability to capture capital gains. You get the ability to manage the product so that you can use it as an inflation hedge, which it does very well if you get that management right. It allows you to diversify your portfolios. And again, you know, we're seeing more and more over the last few years that investors are looking for that fully diversified portfolio. You talked about uncertainty. Flora talked about uncertainty in the world. You know, having a properly diversified portfolio is, is really important to all investors, particularly private investors. But also, I think there's some softer factors that private investors really like. You know, it allows you to really micromanage that diversification. You can pick the sector you want to be in, but then you can also pick the tenant that you want that exposure to. You can pick the absolute geography that you want the exposure to down to the right side of the street to be on. So, so it gives you that ability to really manage your investment strategies down to the finest degree. But it also gives you that ability to be entrepreneurial. And a, a lot of our private family office clients are entrepreneurial. So they want that ability to asset manage, to stock pick, to you know, upgrade the property or to change the use or to change the lease structure and provide that real hands-on management of the asset that you just don't get with some of the more financial structures that family offices also use. And without generalizing too much, because not all private money is built the same way, are you seeing a kind of changing risk appetite from private clients investing, almost notwithstanding the uncertain times we're in when everyone is very risk-averse right now? 
are you seeing clients becoming more mature, becoming more risk adverse? And how does that play out against a kind of ever-changing economic backdrop? That's a really important point. And you mentioned it earlier, that institutionalization. So a lot of our families looking increasingly more like that sort of institutional investor. And absolutely, that's what we're seeing. Are those structures are put in place that they have a more institutional risk appetite. And there's some really, really interesting research by INSEAD that looks at the maturity of the family offices. It goes through those phases of institutionalization. And what you get there is a movement from that more entrepreneurial strategy, which is a wider range of risk and return, towards one with a lower but more stable return profile. So increasingly, as those family offices institutionalize, we see them looking for that more stable. It's lower, but it provides you that certainty that greater protection, that greater risk aversion that a lot of the families are looking for to diversify against what they do on their day-to-day business where their other assets are invested. So, yeah, absolutely. And Anthony, we've heard from Flora that the global economic landscape is affecting real estate markets. We've heard from Sarah that the appetite for new sectors is evolving amongst the kind of ultra-high net worth community amongst our family offices. You know, whilst not all family offices or private clients are are the same, not all commercial sectors are the same. And we hear lots of reports on difficult office markets for obvious reasons, everyone's been working from home on a very difficult retail environment right now. But what are you forecasting or advising clients in terms of longer term strategies with reference to different sectors? How do you think that's going to play out? It's the question everybody's asking. And the way I look at this is that Everything has changed, but nothing has changed at the same time. We are, you know, everything has changed at the moment. And it, we, we went through a period when it felt like all bets are off. And as Flora's you know, articulated, we're coming out the other side of that. But I look back to the advice we were giving in our active capital, which is our global capital markets publication 12 months ago. We hung that advice around a quote from the chief economist of Deloitte, who said, it's too early to predict a recession, but it's not too early to plan for one. And at the time, you know, we didn't see the Black Swan event coming. But there are a number of reasons to know that or to think that a defensive nature and looking for those opportunities in a defensive place was the right thing to do. And so that was our thought then. And it's still our thought now. We can go back into that again. Now, the reality is that real estate, like many other asset classes, is above previous peaks cyclically in terms of pricing all the way around the world. But at the same time, that spread to local government bond yield is as high or higher than it's ever been as well. So the pricing level is being supported, but we are relatively late cycle, notwithstanding the situation we're in at the moment. So the strategy is around looking for those opportunities that look attractive, but also defensive in the late cycle environment. And I don't think that's changed. Obviously the nuances have changed around that, but a lot of that remains the same. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm-hmm.